Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, March 25th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Good morning. Sarah Carlin-Smith of the Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. And Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. So let us get straight to the news this week. There is more than enough. First, we have a Secretary of Health and Human Services. Former California Attorney General and former U.S. Representative Javier Becerra was sworn in on March 22nd after being confirmed by the Senate on a 50 to 49 vote. Uh, Interestingly, Becerra was not sworn in in public by the president or vice president, as nearly every other member of the cabinet has been. I wonder if that's a reflection of just how controversial his nomination turned out to be, particularly his support of women's reproductive rights and issue the Biden administration has not seemed to want to highlight. Um, So I know it's only been, checks calendar, two days, (laughs) but what do we expect Becerra to focus on? The White House seems to have taken over the COVID thing, at least for now. Do we expect him to join that team or jump to try to be the head of that team or focus on the rest of HHS? I noticed his first official trip was to mark the anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. So maybe that's what he's going to focus on. I see nodding. Somebody jump in. That was my thought was he's going to focus on the ACA. I think we see that from his past work on it, that he's an expert in this, that he's a big supporter. And you're right, COVID has been coming from the White House, even in the Trump administration. I mean, the White House has really been leading the COVID response. And I don't think the HHS secretary, either Azar or Becerra, are key to that at all. I think that there's obviously, um, which Margot has written a lot about, expansion of the ACA going on, more to come. And I think that's going to be his priority. Margot, Sarah, what do you think Becerra is going to sort of try to stake out as his place? I think it's a little bit hard to tell yet. And I think partially, you know, he's new himself, but also he has a lot of key deputies who haven't been approved yet. And so I do think HHS right now is missing a lot of really important political leadership that is going to help shape what its agenda is going to be. I did notice he's been having to speak a lot and and work on some of the issues that are happening on the border with unaccompanied minor children. I think it's always worth remembering that the Health and Human Services Secretary has a really big portfolio that includes the kind of human services stuff too. And Uh, Even if that is not necessarily an area of policy that we all talk about, that is something that probably is consuming some of his time and energy right now. And there's an office within HHS that's in charge of unaccompanied minors who come across the border. So obviously, HHS is playing a big role in what's going on at the border right now. And and one of the other things I wonder if Becerra is talking with people about and, and if they're trying to decide a response in some way is opioids. It was a huge problem. Um, people thought it was abating and now the pandemic has just exploded um, overdoses. And, you know, I have to wonder if at some point, maybe when the pandemic is starting to go away, when vaccines are, are ramping up, they they turn to that in some way. That, I was going to say that was something that um, Becerra was fairly active on as an attorney general in California. So I think it's an area he's kind of well-versed and passionate about. And also with the confirmation of um, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, he's also indicated that's going to be a priority for him. So you could see some kind of synergy between them there. Aside from the Affordable Care Act expansion, which like I'm always happy to nerd out about, 
The stimulus bill, the American Rescue Plan Act that uh, recently passed Congress has just like a ton of money in it for different kinds of health initiatives. And uh, some of them are kind of COVID specific. And you might imagine that the White House team is going to care a lot about them. But there's just a lot of money that's going to have to uh, run through HHS. And they're going to figure out how to get it to all the various entities that need it, state and local public health officials. Um, you know, there's testing policy, there's Medicare policy. I mean, there's a lot in there. Um, and it's actually like the dollars are so large that I actually think it's going to take a bit of work and thought to figure out how to distribute them in a way that's going to have a good impact and that's going to be efficient and achieve the goals of the legislation, which is to be short term relief, which means it has to move quickly. So I want to talk about Murthy in a second. But first, since I have both of you here, Sarah and Anna, the one of the big, I guess, the biggest position in HHS for which we have not had an appointment yet is head of the FDA. Do we know what's going on with that? Or is Janet Woodcock, who's, you know, sitting in the seat and has been there a long time doing doing a good enough job that they don't feel like that's an emergency that needs to be tended to? Sarah may have heard different, but I, I haven't heard any other names since, you know, her name was was batted around. And I think that she she's doing a good enough job. I think you're right there. And but I don't know if they don't feel the urgency. Um, I think that there's a lot of pushback from a lot of advocates and things with, that someone needs to be in that spot permanently. But I'm surprised they're having so much trouble, um, but they really are just having a tough time. And I don't know why deciding whether it will be Jana Woodcock or um, someone else, but no other names have surfaced that I've heard. Yeah, most of the other names that have surfaced have either been um, kind of knocked down as people not in contention by the administration or people who have said, no, we don't, I would, I don't want the job. Um, I mean, one of the big holdups, um, if they want to push forward Woodcock is she's gotten a lot of criticism from the progressive and uh, Democrats kind of off the hill. So progressive groups for her handling of the opioid crisis at FDA. And then three key senators on the Democratic side, Senators Manchin, Hassan and Markey have raised concerns and indicated they might vote against her confirmation. People um, tracking this say if Biden nominated her anyway, it's very likely that Republicans would support Wilcock or enough to get her confirmed. It's not it's not clear whether Biden will want to do that and sort of risk kind of creating a controversy within his own party. But the thing is, Anna kind of already touched upon, it's not really clear they have anybody else in the pipeline. If they don't have an alternative, do they go with Woodcock anyway? Supporters of Woodcock, I think, are getting fairly annoyed because they feel like this extended process is kind of dragging somebody who's been a very long time career employee of the U.S. government um, and obviously has things you can criticize about her, things you can commend her for kind of through the mud. And they should either kind of like say they're going to nominate her, or kind of let her off the hook so she can just kind of go back to just focusing on her current job, which is leading the FDA until somebody is fully confirmed. Yes. Well, while we're waiting for FDA, we do have a new Surgeon General, um, as Sarah mentioned, Vivek Murthy, who served under President Obama, is now going to serve under President Biden also after a four-year hiatus. Um, Murthy had to wait nearly two years to get confirmed the first time around, largely because he'd been outspoken about gun violence being a public health issue. That's in the news this week. Uh, this time was substantially easier for him, possibly because Becerra took most of the incoming. I guess that's an unfortunate choice of words. Uh, the Surgeon General is usually not not the most significant position at HHS. It comes with barely any actual authority. But might Murthy become one of those Surgeon Generals who actually breaks through, if only because, you know, pandemic? 
Also, he's done the job before and he doesn't really have much of a learning curve coming in. He's also sort of known as an effective communicator. And so I think that it's a role where that could really become key um, if he's going to have an impact on something. And as Sarah mentioned, he, he did, has kind of focused in on opioids. Um, and I think if a surgeon general wants to choose a topic um, and and dive into it and has the the ability that, you know, we think he has to communicate it and and get it across um, to people, then then it's possible that he could be different in that way. If you've never seen it, you should Google uh, Vivek Murthy and Elmo. <laughs> oh, really? See, you want to see his communication skills. <laughs> My daughter will like that. <laughs> yes, it's very cute. <laughs> so and and finally, you know, late Wednesday, breaking news. Um, we got a new assistant secretary for health. Rachel Levine, the former health secretary in Pennsylvania, uh, is the first openly transgender person ever approved by the Senate. Um, the assistant secretary for, for health actually does have the line authority that the Surgeon General used to have. So she will be in charge of, you know, most of the public health agencies, at least nominally in charge. But I'm curious sort of how, how big a deal this this sort of happened very quietly for the for the Senate, considering there's been so much fire over so many other nominees. Is this is this a major step for transgender rights? Obviously, she's, you know, qualified in her in her own right. I think this is a very interesting moment for the debate around transgender rights, you know, at the same time that we're seeing her get confirmed by the Senate. And we're seeing, uh, you know, almost certainly a rollback of policies enacted under the Trump administration that gave transgender people fewer rights uh, in the federal government. I also think we're seeing a lot of legislation moving at the state level. Um, I know there have been a number of bills that have passed just in the last few weeks about the ability of transgender girls to participate in school sports. So I do think like transgender rights seems like one of these issues that's like very much a culture war issue, even as we're seeing uh, at the federal policy level, I think more expansive approach towards transgender rights. I think at the state level, um, there's still quite a lot of variation in how politicians want to think about this group of people. So we will we will watch as as we get more nominees to, to fill out HHS. But in the meantime, let's nerd out a little bit about the Affordable Care Act. Um, this week marked the 11th anniversary of the law. I was in the East Room for the signing, squished in the back under a still photographer's ladder. Still, it was, as Biden said at the time, a big deal. That's not the word to use, <laughs> but that's the words that I'll use. And our periodic reminder that we are still waiting for the Supreme Court to rule on the case that could invalidate the entire law or not. Today was a decision day. We did not get the decision, so we will wait for the next one. But with the expansion just made by the American Rescue Plan Act, it's going to be an even more confusing deal. Margo, we talked about this some last week, but I'm really glad you're here because you're so far the only one who's explained this in a way that I can understand, which is how to navigate these new benefits. What's the biggest trap for people to avoid? So I think that the biggest challenge is that all of these changes are technically like the law has been enacted and you are entitled to these things right away, these new subsidies, these new programs. But the reality is that the federal government can't just snap its fingers and make it true. And so what's irritating and um, I think very frustrating for people, particularly people who are in a difficult financial spot, is that they are being told that they qualify for all of this new financial assistance, but they actually have to wait a while to get it. Uh, so I would say that the simplest message is that on April 1st, the first and most important set of new benefits are going to roll out in a really transparent way. So if you already have Obamacare coverage, you should go back to healthcare.gov or your state marketplace and you can get 
um, access to enhanced subsidies, which mean that you could keep the same plan for cheaper, or you might even be able to get a better plan for cheaper, and it will all be very clear on the website. It also, if you are a person who has bought your own insurance off exchange, did not get a subsidy before, and maybe never even used an insurance marketplace, it really is going to pay for you to also go to healthcare.gov and see what you qualify for. Um, people at higher incomes are getting subsidies for the first time. And in a lot of cases, they're really substantial. Um, Peter Lee in California said that they think their typical off-exchange customer qualifies for $12,000 worth of subsidies uh, in the next year. And so he said, like, it's worth a little work to get $12,000. That's just, you know, for almost any family, that's just like an enormous amount of savings. And to emphasize, I mean, if you even if you didn't use the exchange to to buy your health plan, and you bought your own plan from a broker or somewhere else during this open enrollment, you can go on the marketplace and now buy a new plan and get help, right? And yeah, and this is where it gets sort of complicated. So the simplest version of this is you just drop your old plan, pick up a new plan, new plan will qualify for subsidies. So that's um, the simplest way of describing it. But actually, there may be even better options for you because what um, healthcare.gov is requiring and what a lot of the states are requiring is, say you have a Blue Cross plan off the exchange and you want to stay in a Blue Cross plan, they should be able to port over all of your deductible payments. So if you already pay, say you paid $1,000 already towards your deductible, you can get a new plan with your $12,000 worth of subsidies, and you can also get that uh, $1,000 credited towards uh, your deductible for the rest of the year. Now, that is more complicated. It's going to, you know, and that's going to require just more hassle. But again, if the dollar numbers are big for you, I think it's worth the hassle. And then there's this last group of people who on paper really get the most robust benefits. Um, if you collect unemployment insurance for any week in the calendar year of 2021, you get a special set of discounts on insurance where you can basically get a $0 premium plan with cost sharing reductions. And that sounds really complicated, but basically what that means, you get a free plan that has almost no deductible. It's a really good deal. But giving that benefit to that group of people has not been something that healthcare.gov has ever done before. And they just don't have a way to easily program the system to qualify you. So Again, you technically qualify for this benefit now, and if you sign up for the right kind of plan, you can get retroactive benefits. But if you can't afford to pay the premiums and wait to get a discount later, then you're really going to have to wait until July, which is when healthcare.gov is going to have a button that you can click. That's why, I, as part as part of the anniversary festivities, such as they were, President Biden announced that they were extending the open enrollment from May 15th to August 15th. I assume that that's because a lot of these things, it's just going to take time for them to, for people to actually figure out how to use them, right? Yeah, I think it's going to take a while. Obviously, it's going to take a while for them to just program healthcare.gov. And I wanted to just, I mean, this is sort of in the weeds, but actually, I think it's kind of an interesting debate that is happening happening inside of the Biden administration. So as I mentioned, if you already get an Obamacare plan, you are legally entitled to more subsidies now. And they could have made a decision to just automatically fix that for you. And just, you know, next month you get a bill for a smaller insurance premium and you don't have to do any work. And they decided not to do that. What they are doing instead is they're asking everyone who has a plan to go back to the website to like click through a couple of buttons and confirm what they want, confirm they want these extra subsidies. And the advantage of that is it means that more people will be forced to like look at what their options are and there might be a better choice uh, for them given the way that things have changed. And I think another advantage is that if people's incomes have changed, they're going to have to like be reminded to go update that so that they're getting the right level of subsidy. 
But I think a downside is like people are really busy and this is hard. It's confusing. Like no one really liked doing it the first time and requiring people to have to do all this hard work to get money that they are technically entitled to is probably going to reduce the number of people who get a, take advantage of it right away. And I think it, it could, you know, one political scientist I talked to said that, you know, this is a temporary program. It's going to expire in two years and the Biden people want there to be political support for extending it forever. And if they don't make it easy and they don't give people a tangible benefit that they're associating with these new programs, it may be harder to build a kind of political constituency for keeping it. You know, if people are just waiting for a tax refund at the end of the year and they're also getting tax refunds because there's a million other new government programs, they may not realize that it's even a health insurance thing. I also feel for all the people who had so much trouble. Some are still having trouble getting unemployment from, you know, people who lost their jobs this time last year. Some of them still haven't gotten unemployment payments. And I think, you know, there's been so much struggling with, you know, with bureaucracies. I could see that people might not, particularly the people who are now, you know, eligible for these like really generous benefits because they've gotten unemployment, just don't want to go back through the whole bureaucratic hassle of it again. Yeah, and I think, you know, the political scientist I mentioned, her name is Pamela Hurd. She works at um, Georgetown. And she said that often when people have a really hard time with these government programs, if it's really like just stressful and difficult and unpleasant, that even when they're really generous, people tend to have a bad feeling about them. And I think the unemployment insurance program is actually sort of exhibit A for that, that the unemployment insurance benefits uh, that were passed by Congress during COVID are super generous, right? It's like, you know, in, in many cases, it's giving people more than they were earning when they were fully employed. But it was so hard and painful for people that I just think the way that people think about that system is not as this incredible, generous lifeline that the federal government gave them, but instead as this like horrible hassle and maze that their state gave, government gave them where they couldn't get to things that they were entitled to. So there's one other, I think this is a pretty important set of benefits um, under the law, which is COBRA. This is the program, like if you lose your job and you want to stay in your workplace insurance, normally you have to pay the full cost of your premium, which can be really expensive. The federal government under this legislation is going to pay the full amount of your COBRA coverage until um, the end of September. So if you have lost your job, you technically can keep your current insurance for free. Uh, that's another one where it sounds really simple, but I think there are some implementation hiccups. I've been getting lots of emails and uh, tweets from people who said, oh, like I lost my job two months ago. Like, how do I sign up for this? And the Department of Labor has been a little bit quiet about the exact details. I think long term, like eventually in a month or two or I don't know, like people are going to be able to get really generous um help with their health insurance. But, you know, again, it's just expecting people to navigate this short-term program that has a long ramp up that is asking them potentially to pay thousands and thousands of dollars up front while the details get sorted out. I think it does kind of decrease the usefulness of it and people's uh, sense of uh, gratitude to the government for providing it. If you take COBRA, which lasts for 18 months, generally, when it runs out, you get a special enrollment period so you can buy a plan on the exchange. But uh, I've seen several experts say that when the federal government stops paying your COBRA benefits in September, you do not necessarily get a special enrollment period. Or have they decided that you do? That So there ha they have not announced that currently under current, uh, you know, guidance, you are not eligible for a special enrollment period at that time. But I, a senior administration official told me 
that they are working on it. So I think it's not definite, definite that people will get that special enrollment period, but I get the very strong sense that that is just something that they have to write a regulation for. They're not trying to leave those people hanging without the ability to get insurance. That's right, because they would be they would end up with having, as you said, having to foot the bill for their entire insurance premium, which in many cases is an awful lot of money. Well, I want to talk at least a little bit briefly about what might be next on the legislative front. I know the original plan was to focus on infrastructure, as in bridges and highways and other things that have not got needed attention in many years, decades in some cases, very popular and in theory bipartisan. But now it seems the package might get, shall we say, expanded, and it might even include an effort to lower drug prices. Also popular, also potentially bipartisan, but it could also help in a budget package for other reasons, right? My drug experts, I see you nodding, Anna. Yeah, I mean, it saves a lot of money for the federal government. The Congressional Budget Office has estimated about $450 billion. So if you're going to have an infrastructure bill, that's a pretty big pay for. You know, it's something the Democrats have wanted to do. Um, Speaker Pelosi called it human infrastructure. So there you go. It um, fits right into this bill, obviously. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, you know, if you're if you're letting Medicare um, negotiate prices, that that'll make a huge difference for um, for consumers. Um, that would be kind of one of the first things that might get at the actual price of drugs versus you know the amount that that people are paying for them, uh, you know, and just kind of passing that cost off on to someone else. Yeah, that's that's such an important distinction that you can do things that lower the price, you know, at the drug counter that don't save any money. Um, It's just somebody else paying it. But now we're talking about actually making the drug companies take less for their uh, for their products. Exactly. And so expect a huge fight from the pharma industry on this. Um, They've done it before. And Certainly, um, they'll do it again, but they are up, up against tougher odds. I'm not sure how it might look in the Senate, but there is a little more support you know, now that the divide is different. Yeah, I think the Senate is definitely going to be tricky here if we're talking about essentially using H.R. 3, the big drug pricing package the House passed last year as a blueprint. There are some senators from kind of key pharma states like New Jersey Senator Menendez, other more, you know, center right, Democrats that may oppose this. But the Senate has also kind of peed up their own drug pricing package last year. And a lot of those elements are part of HR3 as well. So I think you could probably at least get to some kind of compromise. It probably would significantly wear down the savings and get away from the um, drug price negotiation idea. I certainly think there's something that Democrats in the Senate and the House will agree on. It's the can we get everybody to agree to this? What I really think of as like a Medicare drug pricing slash international reference pricing index idea that the House has come up with. So the drug industry for change can actually do a big PR push on, look, we got you these vaccines in the shortest right. time ever. I mean, it's I'm, I'm very serious. Is it going to yeah. be harder for Congress to actually reduce money that's going to the drug industry because at the moment they're public health heroes? I thought it was really interesting kind of in the latter days of the Trump administration actually to watch this dynamic because, you know, it was clear that President Trump, you know, was putting a lot of his COVID eggs in the vaccine basket. And, you know, it turned out that that was like a good place to invest. And it seems like um, 
you know, so many of the different pharmaceutical companies that were making COVID vaccines succeeded, right? We have like a lot of different vaccine candidates, uh, three that have been authorized in the United States already and others that are in the pipeline and they work better than anyone ever could have imagined and they were developed faster than anyone ever could have imagined. And yet at the same time, we saw, you know, some of the last health policy that Trump did out the door was trying to lower drug prices uh, through these, you know, some of them kind of clumsy regulatory means. I think that like anyone who's trying to lower drugs now kind of has to do this weird two-step where I think pharma is riding higher in the public mind than it probably has in a really long time because we're not talking about some of the more marginal improvements uh, that, you know, they tend to get dinged for, for charging a ton of money for, you know, just making a pill that's slightly better than the last pill. I mean, these are truly life-saving breakthrough developments to have these vaccines that prevent uh, people from getting COVID, which shut the entire world down. Pharma will be able to argue then, well, if we didn't have the revenue that you're paying us, uh, American citizens, then we would not be able to have done this. We wouldn't have had the expertise um, or the funding to do this so quickly. Um, I think although the, the federal government, I was about to almost, say, that's I was what I was going to say. say that <laughs> is, is, it might be on the Biden administration to make that argument um, and make people understand it, that it's really the people at NIH who do this kind of research that made it possible for the drug companies to make these vaccines. And so maybe that's where their argument lies. But I think it's a it's probably a pretty big lift to get people to understand that. I know. I mean, the big irony is that vaccine development has been lagging because drug companies just haven't wanted to do it because it doesn't make them enough money. Right, exactly. <laughs> but I think that's, you know, I think it's a really interesting example of one of the benefits of our current system, which is that if you as a pharmaceutical company strike it really big and make a like truly breakthrough kind of treatment or, you know, in most cases, they're talking about treatments for diseases and not for vaccines, but use the vaccine as an example. Like if you make something that is really going to change the world, you're going to get a huge jackpot, right? There's a big incentive for them to swing big for those really important wins because they know that they can make a ton of money. And so the argument that you hear from economists who are more sympathetic to pharma is that if you take away that big payout, if they do something amazing and they don't make back a big investment, they just don't have the same incentive to um, innovate and to take risks and to um, try lots of different things. And I also think there's there was a really wonderful um, piece in Politico last week about what's happening with the European uh, vaccine rollout. And it's a complicated story. There's like lots of reasons why it seems like things are going worse in Europe than they are in the United States. But one of the things that they pointed out is that the European governments were really negotiating hard with pharma on the prices and they did get lower prices for the same vaccines that we got. And when that news originally broke, I think it was like a little bit of like a gotcha, like, oh, the U.S. overpaying for drugs as usual. But like it did turn out that because the U.S. was not as sensitive on price, it was able to buy more more quickly and get first in line to get the vaccines. And so I think it is a reminder that we do benefit as a country from the degree to which we overpay for drugs, that we help the pharmaceutical companies like have incentives to invest in new technologies. 
And then we also often tend to get them uh, fastest because they want to sell to our market the most. And so there are these trade-offs that we're going to have to talk about if we're talking about something that will really take a whack at drug prices. Well, the good news, um, it looked early in the week like we might have a new vaccine for the U.S. on the horizon. AstraZeneca reported some really good numbers for its U.S. clinical trials, then not so much. What is even happening with this vaccine, which is the vaccine that's being used mostly in Europe right now, already approved there? And how did they make such a mess of this? So um, basically what happened is AstraZeneca put out data from an interim analysis of their clinical trial. And maybe about some time, a little before midnight Eastern time here in the U.S. that day, the NIH put out a statement. The NIH in this case is sort of running the data safety monitoring board, the independent kind of data group that helps oversee the trial. And they put out a statement kind of indicating that they felt like AstraZeneca picked a higher number using more preliminary data when they had fuller data that might have made the vaccine look not quite as great. Yesterday evening, um, AstraZeneca put out more updated analysis. It turns out that updated analysis is does make the baseline efficacy number a little bit lower, but it's not a huge difference. It was 79%. Now it's 76%. Which is still pretty good. Right. right. I think that's the one thing like, I mean, even Anthony Fauci, who kind of railed on AstraZeneca on Monday, really tried to emphasize like, this is not about whether this vaccine works or not, or is a quality vaccine or not. It's more about kind of the communication process and trust and how that affects public confidence. As this has sort of played out over the past few days, though, I think initially people were very critical of AstraZeneca. Now, some of the explanations I've seen makes it a bit more complicated. They are bound usually in clinical trials when you sort of set interim efficacy analyses. You're supposed to sort of really clearly stick to the data cutoffs there and how you analyze and report. So is there an argument that maybe they shouldn't have kind of looked at the new data depending on where it came in in the threshold. Sometimes different groups of biostatisticians will analyze data and come up with slightly different numbers because we're not dealing with sometimes really perfect assessments. There can be some human judgment in classifying like, was this a case of symptomatic COVID? Was this not COVID? I think the biggest problem here is that AstraZeneca just hasn't been giving us any explanation really for what happened, why they made a decision to not go with the data that the NIH Data Safety Monitor Board was urging them to go with. They haven't really defended themselves. They haven't apologized. And I think that's where people are starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. And particularly because this is not the first time AstraZeneca has gotten themselves into a bit of a PR crisis during this vaccine development process. It's not the first time this month they've gotten into a PR crisis. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, I think the big reason why people were really interested to see these results is because they had earlier trials not conducted in the U.S. population, where essentially what happened is by some sort of accident, they didn't follow the dosing regimen they were supposed to. Turns out the accidental dosing regimen maybe was better. Uh, they then I had, had to like that one. They then had to kind of like do sort of, you know, a traditional analysis of those trials. There have also been other controversies over how they've communicated about when their trials were put on hold to check for potential safety issues. Last week in the UK, there was some discussion as to whether some safety or 
health events that were seen after people were getting vaccinated was due to their vaccine or not. And it's just been, I think the general perception has been AstraZeneca has not done a good job of letting people understand what's going on, why, and we have these huge issues of vaccine confidence. And that's kind of the big problem right now. It's not that their vaccine may not be actually very good and safe and effective. It's that the public perception may now be it's not safe and effective. And, and, and that's that's actually my next question was, is there a concern that the, the, the woes and the trials and tribulations of AstraZeneca are going to rub off on the other vaccines that people are not going to make a distinction. I mean, you know, as it is here in the US, you basically can't pick your shot. I mean, if you get an appointment, you just go and you get what they have. And, you know, for for a while, we had people who didn't want the J&J shot because they thought that it was less effective, which quite possibly is not, meaning it's quite possibly just as effective. It's probably just as effective as, as the other ones. Um, but now I worry that people, even without the AstraZeneca you know, uh, vaccine being approved here, people are going to start doubting the other ones too. Well, I think there's a, you know, among people who are worried about the vaccines, uh, I think there is this concern that they were rushed to market and that they didn't receive the amount of kind of scrutiny scrutiny that we normally uh, provide to drugs and vaccines. You know, the kind of just newness and fastness, I think it makes people uncomfortable. And I think the sense that uh, a company that is like rushing or maybe dissembling or screwing up its trials is going to get through the process potentially. You know, I think there is a fear that that could contribute to those fears. Now, I don't think that those fears are necessarily well grounded. It seems like the FDA is doing a really good job. All the evidence about the uh, vaccines that they've authorized so far seems like really stunningly positive. And they haven't authorized um, AstraZeneca in the United States yet. I don't know uh, what they will ultimately do. AstraZeneca hasn't applied yet. They're they're just getting ready to. But I think there was a view and a lot of the stories, the kind of first day stories when that original 79% number was reported in their press release was that AstraZeneca saw authorization in the United States as important as like a sign to the world that they had a high quality vaccine that could be relied on because the FDA in a lot of ways is sort of the gold standard regulatory agency. Uh, whereas some of the other authorities that approved them were kind of in a big hurry to get a vaccine on the market and maybe were being a little bit uh, quick and rushed about the way that they were assessing it. So I don't know. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to be part of the um, FDA folks who have to assess this one because, uh, you know, as everyone said, in, in the final analysis, it looks like it is pretty good. And there's a pretty good track record in the rest of the world where like lots and lots of people have already received this vaccination. But at the same time, I think the company just has not given us kind of confidence-inducing sense of professionalism. And this last round, which I, I mean, I do think there's some complications, but I just think that in the kind of home stretch, seeming to exaggerate the efficacy of their vaccine just doesn't make them seem particularly trustworthy about other stuff either. And they, they don't really get the last word either on this, because as you alluded to, Margot, like the Food and Drug Administration is going to assess this. They're going to have an advisory committee meeting where they bring um, their their vaccine experts in to talk about it. If there's any disagreement on that 76% number, we'll see it there. And so there was a letter from the Data Safety Monitoring Board that was leaked to the Washington Post that talked about, you know, your numbers should be more between, I think it was like 64% and 72% or something like that. So I think that the 76% is not kind of the final word. And if they have a harsh advisory committee meeting, that could even 
harm them further. Even if it's just a quibble over a couple of percentages, you're going to have people who are going to ask really tough questions of them in front of the public. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see the FDA documents that come out on this data and what they what they assess and, and what they see in it. Because all, we don't really know a whole ton right now. Like we don't have a ton of information about, you know, besides the top line number. I was going to say that goes back to a big problem we've had throughout this crisis with, you know, trial data is it's coming just from press release. And usually you have a lot more data in the public domain to evaluate it, to write on it. You know, as a as a journalist covering drug development, this wouldn't be the first time a company has done a little spin in their press releases. But oftentimes there's a much more information available to you. You can talk to other experts and you can pick out that spin fairly easily and in your coverage. And in this case, there was very... If that DSMB didn't speak up, there was really no way for anybody to challenge what was going on. So that's been a big kind of like public health scientific communication issue here. Um, Another thing I want to mention in terms of the U.S., I think the FDA review is going to be important, um, as Margo mentioned, for the world, because the U.S. actually may not have much need or use for this vaccine. We have bought enough of the other products at this point, but the AstraZeneca vaccine is one of the easier ones to kind of distribute throughout the world. The price point is, I think, the lowest of any of the vaccines I've seen thus far. So we're going to have an issue potentially like we saw with the J&J vaccine, where there may be a perception that this wealthy country, the United States, is kind of giving away the less than stellar product if we don't kind of get all these communication issues resolved, because I think there's a good chance a lot of the U.S. supply of this vaccine might eventually get shipped to other parts of the world. And vaccine confidence matters not just in the United States, but in the world, right? COVID is a global pandemic. Everyone in the world uh, is at risk of catching it. Any place in the world where there's a lot of COVID, um, you know, risks other parts of the world getting it too. I mean, I think from the perspective of the US, whether or not uh, AstraZeneca gets approved and whether or not people have confidence in this particular product may not matter that much. But I think for the world, making sure that all of the vaccines that are good get approved, distributed, and can build public confidence around the world that they're good is really important. And so seeing them kind of flub this is not great for that project. Well, thank you. I feel like I understand this better than I did when we started. Um, Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the link to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Sarah, why don't you go first this week? Because you have a follow on to what we were just talking about. Sure. So the story I looked at is in America, COVID vaccine eligibility is a crazy quilt of state rules by Kaiser Health News' Phil Galowitz. It just sort of outlines how every state and then even every kind of county or city within a state has set their own eligibility standards of who can get a COVID vaccine and when. And there's certainly, I think, a feeling around the country at this point that there's not always a rhyme or reason to, you know, why can a 65-year-old in California get a vaccine, but no one younger. But then in some states, you can pretty much, anyone over 18 can get a vaccine. In some states, if you work in a grocery store, you can, you know, that qualifies you as an essential worker. In other states, that doesn't. Again, it's just becoming another public perception issue of the U.S. Um, A lot of people um, in the federal government and elsewhere tried to come up with sort of fair, equitable 
approaches to target the vaccines first, the people perceived as most sort of vulnerable and needing to be protected from the virus. But then when every state and jurisdiction has different rules about how that works, you start to question whether any of this is based in sound data or science. And it just also makes it super complicated to figure out, can you get a vaccine? Where can you get it? How do you sign up? So it just adds to all the public frustration we've had. I feel like this sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the ACA, which is here's this great thing that you can get for free, but we can't figure out how to get it to you very efficiently. Um, Anna. Um, So mine is from STAT. Um, It's what Beans taught her parents about pediatric cancer, the need for research and patient advocacy. Um, Just a little bit of background. Um, Beans is Francesca Kaczynski. Um, She was the daughter of CNN reporter um, Andrew Kaczynski and and his wife, Rachel Louise Ensign, who was a Wall Street Journal reporter. Um, She was diagnosed with a brain tumor when she was six months old um, and did pass away. But it's extremely heartbreaking and just really difficult for the family. But what's been interesting to watch. And um, what the article talks about is the advocacy her parents have gotten involved in. And what I found so interesting about the article is it talks about really in depth what happens when your baby has a disease that maybe 60 people in the U.S. um, have and how you deal with that and how there really aren't a lot of treatment options because who's developing something for such a small group? It was sort of written as a question and answer, um, not as much in story form, but just the reporter asking questions and and Andrew answering them. And he went through all of the things that he and his wife did to to try to get Francesca treatment. And he talked a lot about the gaps in the system as well. And so while I knew their story and I'd um, I'd seen it unfold, he's been very open on social media with kind of every heartbreaking step. But this laid out there, everything that they've gone through and just makes you think about our system and where it fails these kids particularly. Um, and talks a little bit about advocacy and and sort of where people can get involved. So I wanted to highlight that one. It's beautiful. And and yeah, for for the for the hundreds of thousands of us who followed this sort of tragedy on Twitter, it was, I think, a little bit cathartic. Margot. I wanted to recommend an article in the Wall Street Journal from Tom McGinty, Anna Wild Matthews, and Melanie Evans uh, called hospitals hide pricing data from search results. We were talking about the various things that uh, Becerra is going to have to do now that he's the Health and Human Services Secretary. And one of the things before him is that the Trump administration finalized kind of really pathbreaking regulations that require hospitals and insurance companies to publish the prices that they have negotiated with each other. And the view of people who favor this is that it will give, it will empower consumers, it will shame the bad actors, and it will help employers and insurers negotiate uh, better deals. And so since January, hospitals have been required to publish in like an easy to find place on their website, all of the prices that they have negotiated with all of the insurers that they do business with. And what this story found is not only are many of them just simply not doing it, but a lot of the ones that have done it are including code on those pages that make it so that Google will not find them. So they were trying to prevent people from being able to easily find this consumer data because it's not really, you know, the hospitals have fought this all along and don't really want these prices to be made public. And there are explanations that they offer in this article, but uh, 
I just really admired the kind of doggedness and of these reporters in holding these hospitals to account for not doing it. And also uh, the kind of creativity of their methods where they basically used a computer program to find out which ones were using this special code uh, that was blocking search results. Capitalism is grand. Um, my story <laughs> is kind of a provocative story by David Leonhardt at the New York Times. It's called Bad News Bias. That's kind of a play on words. But the story is about how here in the U.S., much more of the news about COVID has been negative than it has in other countries. And I completely agree with David that at least some of that is that we in the media feel the need to be the counterpoint to perhaps artificially upbeat stories from self-promoters, be they companies, celebrities, or politicians. But I also think, and this is not in this story, that some of it is that we had so much more mis- and disinformation here in the U.S. than in many other countries, uh, including from the very top. So we in the media ended up spending much more time than we otherwise might have trying to report things like how COVID wasn't a hoax, it wasn't the flu, and really if people didn't take basic public health precautions, it would spread. And all that ended up looking pretty negative. But as I like to say, you should read the story and draw your own conclusions. It really did. It's very thought-provoking. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound good even when we're all in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Anna? At Anna Edney. Sarah? At Sarah Carlin. Margo? at Sanger Cats. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.